1: This is a CBC podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, September 10th, on CBC Radio. is closing the circle on the series she set in motion with her breakout novel The Break. In about 20 minutes we'll talk about why she thinks it's so vital to tell stories about trauma and triumph in many Indigenous families. Later on we'll turn our focus to this Crown Corporation, CBC president and CEO Catherine Tate will be by to discuss her vision, her critics, and where your public broadcaster fits in a media world under threat. After that, the pressure is going to be on me and our other players as our monthly challenge That's Puzzling returns. But right now, our Sunday politics panel is here and on deck. They'll have the latest on this weekend's Federal Conservative Policy Convention and where all the parties and their priorities stand as Parliament gets ready to sit. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Federal Conservatives wrote into their policy convention in Quebec City this weekend on a polling high, with some placing that party at more than 10 points over the governing Liberals. And leader Pierre Polyev punctuated the event with a speech selling his vision to Canadians.
3: So here's the choice between the costly coalition and my common sense plan. They choose taxes, I choose technology. They push up prices of traditional energy we still need. I'll push down prices of carbon-free alternatives. They put stop signs in front of our workers. I will green light green projects. And most important, they send dollars to dictators. I will bring home paychecks to our people in this country. Bring it
4: home. Bring it home.
2: Our Sunday Politics panel is here to break down what went down at the Conservative convention and how the Liberals and NDP are positioning themselves ahead of Parliament's return in just over 1 week from today. Susan Delacourt is a national columnist with the Toronto Star, Matt Gurney is a serious XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack, and David Staples is a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. Hi everyone.
5: Good morning.
2: Let us uh, go around the horn, Matt. Let me begin with you. If you had to write a sentence or two on the outcome of the Conservative Convention, what would it say?
4: Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I feel like I haven't had enough time to digest it yet. To me, it seemed, (laughs) uh, here's my sentence. In fact, it's not even a sentence. It's two words. As expected. It, It basically felt to me kind of what I expected it to be. Heavy on the leader, heavy on Polyev. Heavy on the, this is uh, why the Liberals are bad, this is what we're going to do for Canadians, but also unapologetic in taking on some of the issues that I think Aaron O'Toole and probably even Andrew Scheer would have shied away from. So yeah, I'll go with as expected. Probably the only surprise I come out of it with is that I've been a little bit surprised, at least thus far that there doesn't seem to be a lot of traction uh, among the Liberals of be really being able to kind of score any points on them here. Maybe that's coming, like maybe that starts tomorrow, but thus far, like sending Minister Guibault, I just, I didn't think that worked.
2: Okay, we'll talk more about the Liberals' response to all this and how how that party will position itself. But uh, David, uh, from the Conservative Convention, in a sentence or two.
3: I think they hit a home run. And I think it's mainly due to the fact that... Um they saw many Canadians for the first time saw Anna Polyev on stage. And it, she was she was kind of shocking how strong a figure she is, how impressive a person she is, her personal story, um, her presence. It was like Elvis was in the building huh. and it wasn't Pierre. It was her. Huh. She uh, has a common touch and uh, power and communication that few other people have. And it had me thinking, well, she should be the candidate. Pierre was very strong. Pierre poliev was very strong in his, you know, standing up, speaking off the cuff. It didn't seem like he had a lot of notes or anything for like an hour. But what is left, I think, is this image of her um, just having incredible charisma, knowledge, and a common touch.
5: Okay, Susan, what stood out for you? I, I, you know, to echo uh, my panelists here, uh, definitely the energy in the room, the energy behind it. My colleague Stephanie Levitz has been there and I talked to her yesterday and she said, you know, I was trying to match up what I was seeing on TV what she was feeling. And definitely there is there is an energy around this party now. It has been reset from from June. I think it's a different party even than it was in June. How so? And, well, I, I think uh, along with, Um, Mr. Polyev's makeover of his image uh I think the attack dog stuff was was not as much as I would have expected at this convention you know I watch Pierre Polyev's daily news conferences and they are anti-Trudeau rants basically and that's about it and there was a lot more uh in, in his speech on Friday night. I, I disagree a bit with David about the, uh, I know we're just supposed to say a sentence or two, but um, no I one's was,
2: stuck to that yet. So it's okay. I know.
5: Undisciplined <laughs> bunch that we are. Um, I, I was surprised how nervous Mr. Polyev looked on stage on Friday night and the fact that he was reading his speech from the ground, from, um, obviously a, a teleprompter on the ground and he kept looking down rather than into the crowd and I thought it, it probably it, it didn't matter for people in the room, they're just happy to be there but I think coming out of this to to go back to one, one of the only sentences I should have said is I'm going to be really keen to see how much that room matches Canada because you know we know there is an anti-Trudeau sentiment in the land but are, does the Conservative Party embody something that looks like Canada right now? And I, I I'm I'm not sure yet.
2: Okay, well let's talk about that because um as I said in the introduction, at least according to polls, and we're a ways away from an election, but, you know, he's up over the Liberals or that party is as high as 14% in one poll, but like at least into the double digits. And so he's going to have to woo uh, more Canadians. He said as much. I want to expand the tent. This convention had debate and votes on lots of policy proposals. Some involved social issues. They voted to add new policies, including limiting access to transgender health healthcare for minors and doing away with vaccine mandates. Susan, uh, Polyev can choose which policies he adopts. He doesn't have to do any of them. But he is trying to expand that tent. These are divisive issues, divisive cultural issues in our country. So now what does he do with all of this?
5: Well, he's going to do a better job of that than uh, his two predecessors immediately. Um, Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer fell into this trap too of trying to juggle appealing to the conservative base without offending the you know the swing voters and twice now in two past elections the conservatives have failed to do that so I expect hmm, Mr. Polyev to do it the way Harper did which is he'll he'll put everything around freedom and libertarianism almost you know everybody's free to have their opinion but the, what the leader says goes and that's That's the juggling act he's got ahead Mm. of him. And he's he's just got to do it better than than his past two predecessors.
2: David, how do you see this one? Like expanding the tent, bringing in those soft liberals and other Canadians who might at this point not be so interested in the Conservative Party and its social issues, and yet being true to your base?
3: Well, I think the freedom, the call for freedom um, will resonate with the Conservative base And, you know, like Daniel Smith in Alberta, he got a lot of traction with people who were upset with COVID um, restrictions. And one of the biggest applauses that uh, Anna Polyev got was when she brought up the truckers. And this is a big thing with conservatives, uh, freedom, freedom, freedom. But I don't actually think it's going to be the focus of Polyev's campaign. And I don't think it was the focus of their overall message. What they really are focusing on is people are hurting And they talked a lot. There was tons of personal stories about meeting this person and that person from across Canada who's really hurting. And often those stories can come across as canned and phony. But the the fact of the matter is people are hurting. We all know people who are hurting. And if this is their message, that their whole focus is helping those people, it's, it's a very interesting one for the Conservatives. Because, you know, helping people doesn't always come first to mind with Conservatives. But if that's the first thing out of their mouths, constantly during these, you know, this extended campaign until the next election, we're here for you. We're here to help. People are hurting. We know it, and we're going to bring in a whole slate of economic programs and policies. They're going to they're going to repair that. I think it's a very powerful message right now, and it's and it's and it's. Um, it's a, strong, it's, a good, it's a good place to fight the election for the Conservatives is on economic issues, and that's where they're going to go.
2: Matt, will that work for the Conservatives? In other words, like they have obviously strong support in the prairies, especially in Alberta, where, where David is, but in the more swing ridings in, say, B.C. or Ontario, where in order to win enough seats to form the next government, they're going to have to make more inroads. Hard to guess
4: if it's going to work. Uh, I'm going to punt that one and say, ask me in two years. But I think we could say now it's working. <laughs> Like, we we have seen uh, the polls shift in a big way. I don't know if it sticks, right? Like, I don't know if that lasts, but as of right now, at least, it's working. And I, I think I want to, I want to pick up, uh, Pia, on something that both David and Susan were saying about kind of the grounds where this election is going to be fought on. Uh, yeah, the economic issues, the cost of living issues, housing in particular, that is one where I think Pierre Polyev has a winning card, and obviously I think he's going to play it. But I also have the sense, and right now it's more gut feeling than anything else. I, I've spent some time this morning looking up polls because that's how I like to start a Sunday. <laughs> I wanted to see if I could find <laughs> proof of this. And I can't really yet, but I have the sense that the ground has shifted and that some of these social issues that would have been um, you know, campaign killing poison for Aaron O'Toole – Or Andrew Scheer just aren't going to be in the same way for for Pierre Polyev. I don't know if that makes them campaign winners, but I think he's going to be able to take stands on issues of accommodations for for trans people or uh, issues like vaccine mandates. I think he has a different situation. And I think David used the terminology, I'm going to pick up with it here. He's fighting on a different battle, battleground. Like the terrain is different for him here. Susan's right. He has to do a better job than uh, Aaron O'Toole did. But at the same time, I just think his job might actually be a little easier.
2: All right. Um, If you're just joining us this morning, I'm joined by political columnists Susan Delacorte, Matt Gurney and David Staples. We're talking about the federal political landscape. The House uh, sits again uh, a week from tomorrow. Um, Okay, let us talk about the Liberals because the Conservatives' rise in the polls largely comes at the Liberals' expense um, and it is sure to hang over the Liberals' caucus retreat in London, Ontario this week. David, what can the Liberals do to rebuild the support they've lost, to to change the dial and the focus from Pierre Polyev?
3: That is a very difficult question, Pia, because these economic issues um, aren't going to go away fast. The the interest rates, we we got so used to low interest rates, 20 years of them. They're not coming back. They're not coming back anytime soon. It's not going to happen. The, the debt and the deficit, this kind of spending, it's not dealt with overnight. Inflation isn't dealt with quickly. You know, a lot of the other scandals, SNC-Lavalin seem like a big scandal. Well, in the leaders' debate before that election, it didn't, it, I think it came up once. It was mentioned once in the entire leaders' debate. Um, the whole thing with China, all the various issues, seems like a big scandal. But again, I don't think it's going to come up in the election because Those scandals don't hit people where they live. They don't hit you when you go to the gas station, when you go to the grocery store, when you're looking for a raise at work. Those are the issues for Canadians. They are not easy to fix. And Justin Trudeau's economic policies are going to be blamed for, rightly or wrongly, and that's a debate we could have, but they are going to be blamed for the economic policies we have. Those economic policies, Nothing's going to change in the next few years. It's going to be difficult times in Canada as I see it. So what can you do? Um, Is Justin Trudeau willing to bring in a whole suite of far more conservative economic policies as the Liberals have done in the past under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin, kind of adopt the conservative playbook on the economy? I see zero, next to zero chance that's going to happen. So they have to have a leader and a policy program which is going to seriously address these economic issues. And until they do that, and it may take them a a few years, it may take them a, a new leader or two, they're going to struggle, I think. They're going to eventually do it, but it's going to take some time. Susan,
5: how do the Liberals turn the tide? Well, Pierre Polyev has a very big job because he's not only got to unite the Conservatives, but he's got to unite the liberals too, because that is that's what worked at their convention, liberals in May. Uh they all went in there sort of in a in a restive mood. And it was the talk of Polyev and the prospect of Polyev winning that united them. So I think you're going to see this week uh the Prime Minister talking a lot about that. You're going to see cabinet ministers talking about the Polyev threat. I, I wrote this week, though, that that Trudeau has two two troubles at least, um, or two sets of them. One is the Conservatives; the other is his own party. Hmm. It's dispirited. My colleague Althea Raj did a piece this week that I highly recommend you look at. She she ran she ran out of time talking to people, and they're open liberal MPs, openly frustrated. The cabinet reset didn't help them. So there's a bad mood in the party. There's a a threat from the Conservatives that's more credible and real now than it was when Parliament broke. And then, you know, they've still got to manage this deal with the NDP. I, I would call that half a trouble, but the the two big ones are, one is coming from outside, the Conservatives, and one is coming from the, the dispirited morale inside the Liberal what, Party what, right what's now. What's behind
2: that dispirited morale? Like the backbenchers and LTSP are... are, are- you know not thrilled with the prime minister's office with the pmo
5: exactly they they just don't they think that everything was renewed this summer but sometimes not for um for the better and you know it, there's the usual sort of i didn't get into cabinet uh disgruntlement which is common in every party as long as i've been covering politics but there is a frustration with the prime minister's office that it's seen as distant from the caucus and not listening to the concerns that are, are being expressed there. And I think he's going to get an earful this week from caucus members about that, if, if they have the guts to do it. Hmm. But, uh, yeah.
2: Matt, you know, one thing that Trudeau has been able to do when these divisions sort of seep up in his parties, he seems to get everyone back on track, at least for a short time. But if you were, like, talking to the party saying, hey, you're con- the Conservatives are, are really up in the polls, you're in trouble, what would you say the Liberals should do? It's
4: a great question. But first, let me just say one thing to Susan. I think being referred to as half a problem is the best press the NDP has gotten in months. So <laughs> I think I just, I just wanted to flag that. That's the best news they've had in a while. Uh, to, to your question, though, Pia, I think that it's a great question. And one of the things I just like I, I want to say, our framing of the questions here is what are the liberals going to do? What can they do? What do they need to do? I, I, I want to just throw the possibility out there that the answer might be nothing. And I think it's worth remembering here that I think David laid out very well the difficulty in the Liberals changing the narrative here. I think they'd be reluctant to do it. I don't know if they would have the time to do it. But I also think we need to consider, just based on what we've seen of this government of the last little while, it really seems to have kind of locked up at the senior level of of decision-making. Even if they decided to do these big, bold things that David was alluding to, or even go in some other new direction, I don't think they could pull it off. Like, I had not been, like, I've been watching these guys for about a year now, thinking that they are adrift and rudderless. And I don't know if they would have the ability to pull off a big directional change. And I think, Pia, to to your actual question here, if you're the prime minister and you go to the caucus meeting, And you're trying to, you know, promise them like a bold new vision and here's the plan and here's what we're going to do. And these are the guys who have not been listened to as per Althea's piece, which like Susan, I recommend. These are the guys who have cabinet ministers who don't check their emails. Like, I don't know how you're going to be able to make that message here, especially because the polling is not just showing that the conservatives are opening a lead, although that's bad for the liberals. It's also showing that the liberal support is tanking in the key demographics and areas of the country that they have had a lock on for years. Like the horse race number is bad, but I think seeing what's happening with women and everyone under the age of about 45 is the real problem. The prime minister has, he has no good news version to sell to his caucus.
2: All right. This, all of it leaves the NDP in an interesting spot. It had its caucus retreat this past week. And during that um, leader Jagmeet Singh opened things up with a, with an attack on Pierre Polyev. So David, take me to where you are. The new Democrats have a lot of support in Alberta, um, The province primarily votes in conservatives, but it does have support. So how do you understand the federal NDP and what it's trying to do right now?
3: The federal NDP is in a ton of trouble. Um, There has been some writing within the party about um, how they've become a a party of, of elites, of academic elites, professional elites, and they've lost touch with working people and specifically with working men. Um, they've got to find a way to get in touch back in touch with working men and start speaking their language. And it's and it's not, let me just take one example. Nuclear power is uh, you know the backbone of the Ontario electrical system. It has been a it's it's been a huge benefit for Ontario. And in and in people are now waking up, this has been a spectacular thing for climate change in terms of curbing emissions in Ontario. Well, It should be a home-run issue for the NDP. You support good-paying jobs in Canada, uh, supply lines in Canada, Canadian-made technology, the Canadian working people, Canadian skill. You deal with climate change. Well, the NDP is the one party that is still against nuclear at the federal level. It's it's mind-boggling that they're stuck in the past on an issue like that and out of touch with their own constituency on an issue like that where – Whereas the Conservatives, Pierre Pauly, have said more about nuclear power in his speech than I've heard from a federal leader in, in ever. He, he talked about it three or four times. He, he, he brought up how it's going to decarbonize the Alberta oil sands and uh, how you have to green light it fast. P- Justin Trudeau, to his credit, in the last um, six months, has become very pro-nuclear in a part, in the Liberal Party, which is divided on the issue. But the NDP still badly out of touch. They're starting to think about it. They're starting to write about it. They've got to change. It's going to be very difficult to do.
2: Susan, um, pick up on what David's saying about what the NDP needs to do, perhaps policy-wise, but also with its um, supply management agreement with the Liberals. Is this still a productive partnership or has it become a liability?
5: I think it's still productive for them. And I, you know, you saw this week with the announcement of the Foreign Interference Inquiry, for example, the NDP quick to claim credit or pushing the liberals. I think you're going to hear Jagmeet Singh doing that a lot more. I wouldn't be surprised if they try to, you know, harden up the deal, as, as some have suggested. Uh, but I, I think... Do you mean ask for more? Ask for more. Ask, uh, make it more substantial. You know, p- put some more targets on. Uh, we, we do have, you know, sort of vague deals on on pharmacare and dental care, for example, go out and claim credit for that wherever they can. I think that's their strategy, but it's to to present the liberals as as doing what the NDP tells them to do. I don't know whether that that's a, a marketable proposition, but I think that's what you're going to see them mm-hmm. doing.
2: Matt, where are you on the NDP? You know one of the things I found interesting and I, I guess it's kind of because he has to because of the supply management deal is Singh's focus on attacking the conservative leader, right like really going after the other opposition.
4: Yeah, and that's an interesting choice to me. Um, he, look, I, I think I'm I'm very much in line with uh, David here. I, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say screwed, uh, but that's kind of <laughs> what I can come up Like what I'm trying to describe the problem the NDP have, I can't do any better than that. They're fighting a two-front war. They have to either go after their white-collar, highly educated, progressive downtown vote in major urban centers, or they've got to fight in the rural seats uh, with more kind of typical... Blue collar working class workers, and as David has said rightly, mainly men. Now, this has been something the conservatives have been trying to do for about twenty years. Like they, like they've been going after the liberal, uh, pardon me, the NDP blue collar vote since Stephen Harper was was prime minister, and they really haven't had much luck at it. But in Ontario, Doug Ford has. He has started to flip NDP seats blue. Now, I don't know if that's a Ford factor. I don't know if that's an Ontario thing, or I don't know if that's a leading indicator. I honestly don't. But I do know that the NDP is going to have to try and figure out a way to protect their downtown core and their remaining more rural blue collar seats. And I really don't think that they have any clue what the message is that will let them fight on both those fronts at the same
2: time. Okay, folks, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you all. And David, thanks for joining us this morning. appreciate it. Thank you.
3: It was my pleasure.
2: <laughs> Susan Delacourt is a national columnist with the Toronto Star. Matt Gurney is a Sirius XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. And David Staples is a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and if you're anything like me, the pile of books that you want to get through this fall is mounting. There are lots of books in the fall book seasons that are out there. I've had a chance to read a few, and I've enjoyed them, including the latest one by my next guest. Katerina Vermette's debut novel back in 2016 received enormous praise. It was called The Break, and it's a searing portrait of what it means to be Indigenous in inner-city Canada. Follows a family grappling with trauma after one of their relatives, a young teenage girl, was brutally assaulted in Winnipeg's North End. Then her follow-up novel, called The Strangers, brought readers into the world of another Winnipeg family, that of the teen responsible for that assault. Well, now the award-winning novelist and poet is back with the third installment in this ongoing story, it's called The Circle, and this one weaves the stories of these two families together, just as Phoenix Stranger, the girl who's convicted of the attack, is released from prison. Katerina Vermet, hello.
6: It's nice to be here. Thank you.
2: Thank you for your book. I know that each of the three books, the ones I just mentioned, can be read independently, but they are a trilogy of sorts. So mm-hmm. when you set out to write The break a number of years ago. Was this the plan? Was the plan always to write a series of connected books?
6: I don't think a plan is not the right word. I think dream is probably the word. But when I sat down to write my first novel, it was daunting enough to write a novel, never mind a whole bunch of (laughs) novels. So I really just concentrated on that one. And I thought that I knew this larger story, I saw the families, I knew what was happening next. I I honestly thought that was just how you write a novel, that the characters just continue to haunt you. Mm. But it wasn't until a couple years later after I had relaxed after that story that I really realized there was something there and really wanted to set down to, to finish writing that story. Finish, in quotation marks. <laughs> to continue to write that story. Yeah, so with the circle, you know, you can think of the uh, circle as closing something. So is this the last one in this series? Well, I look at them as interconnected, standalone, but they... At the same time, they do follow a chronological arc. Um, I do feel that this is the completion of that particular arc. In a lot of ways, the circle bookends the break in that it's a response to that, whereas the strangers in the middle is more of that family saga backstory of of that particular family. And this one is, as you said, the two families coming together. Hmm. It does feel like a companion to this, and I do think I'm finished with this particular segment of the story, which involves these characters and this arc. As I said,
2: so there are a lot of characters, at, and we're going to talk about well, at least one of them, in just just a bit. But I, I want to talk about something else, which is what I see as a character, and I think you set out to make it a character as you wrote these, which is Winnipeg's North End, which is the setting of this novel and its predecessors. Take me there and tell me why it's so important for you to set your novels there.
6: Well, it's the North End in particular from this story and the last one. I am also reaching out past and beyond the North End. I'm reaching into greater Winnipeg and St. Boniface and Woesley and West Broadway. And I really did want to, to center it in a place. I think place is incredibly important to story. I think it place in itself just determines so much about our characters and what we do what we can do. Um, Winnipeg here in in my stories it is its own very asserted character. There's an assertiveness to Winnipeg. You know it's there. It's either blazing hot or fiercely cold to be like just as one part of the example. Like it really matters what neighborhood you're in. It's a beautiful place. It's a challenging place. It's full of all sorts of things I love and both hate and love in turn. (laughs) But it is, as I say, worthy of literary attention.
2: And of course, there's, you know, large Indigenous
6: communities in this these settings and the history of all that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Winnipeg has an amazing history where we come from such amazing. I say badass. I don't know if I can say that. I might be bleeded. Okay. <laughs> um, badass warriors. I mean, this is a city built on resistance, like literally the first major act of Winnipeg or the place that was settled to be Winnipeg called Red River was the Pemmican Wars and the resistance between fur trade groups, one of which was the founding of the Michif Nation. Um, And then further on to that, our coming into Canada was built on still more resistance, you know. So I really like to to push against that history. I do think we definitely, all of us, in one way or another, come from that and are affected by that. Resistance
2: is a good segue to talk about Mm -hmm. the character Phoenix Stranger, who is sort of the crux. In uh, in the circle, everything sort of circles around um, her and her release. So for people who are listening who have never picked up a Katarina Vermette novel, tell me about Phoenix, who she is, what she represents to you.
6: Oh, what she represents. Phoenix is kind of like this alter ego that's been following me around for, gosh, I don't even want to guess how long. The break as a novel took me many, many years to write. So it was many years before 2016 we've been hanging out with one another. Huh. She's a difficult to love. She is as much her own worst enemy as someone who I have immense empathy for because of all of the things she's had to endure and literally house inside of her her little body. She has... This fight in her, this, well, I think in her life, she's really had to be hard and learned to provide a thick, hard shell in order to walk about the world and keep herself as safe as she can, which is not very safe. Um, Phoenix is a person who has communicated in the world through acts of extreme violence. She has been forced and I think part of my job as a storyteller is she does need to be accountable for those things mm-hmm. And but at the same time those people who commit horrendous acts are also still in fact still human beings so Phoenix is definitely that so the, the novel The Circle starts right when she is released from prison and all the people who love and care for her and want to love and care for her as well as those who were harmed by her are deeply affected by her Entry into the community once again.
2: Yeah, and so each chapter is devoted to one of these people who are connected in some way uh, to Phoenix, sort of telling their story and their connection and how they're thinking through her release. So the Phoenix's sister, the cousin of the girl she heard, their grandmothers, many, many more. Mm -hmm. Why did you th- feel it was important
6: for your readers to hear all those differing views and accounts? Every single voice, every single, And then someone else. Like, I just feel like I just... I really indulged in my love for character. And when I set out to write, I thought it would be similar to my other novels where I would re- be returning to characters. I love multiple point-of-view novels and polyphonic novels or polyvocal novels, whatever you want to call them. I really do like... Re- Taking different pr- points of view and perspectives um, on the exact same situation and seeing just how different we all see the world, like profound differences, even in people who are terribly close to one another. But when I started writing, I, I got really interested in all the little side characters. Um, I was really called forth by there's a, there's a little child, Alexandra. I really wanted to take into her, her voice. And the story really came alive through their different perspectives. And, of course, the, it became the story, not only how they are affected by the events— how each is there, as individuals they're affected by what's going on, but also how foreshadowing to what happens, how they're going to be affected mm. by the continuing. So when you meet little 10-year-old Alexandra or her mom Angie or the old elder Ben, you see not only how they're immediately affected, but how this story fits into their great the greater parts of their life. I had a lot of enjoyment really getting to know each of them. Mm in in a little more deeper way than I had before. You
2: know, despite all these differing views, there's this common ground. Of course, all these characters, these people are connected in real kind of practical ways, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also this commonality of people seeking to connect and belong with biological families or chosen ones. And Phoenix has released really seems to stir up that need for connection. And so I wonder what was a bigger idea you were trying to drive at about when a person is released and how that as much as it may have and continue
6: to pull people apart, it pulls them together, too it pulls them together as much as it's about phoenix it's like phoenix is really in the periphery of all of this it's really the effect of her reentry into the community and not so much about what she's feeling her perspective isn't shown in the book but the other perspectives are shining through so the idea of those who she's harmed You know, how they kind of come together. The second chapter is Jake, whose cousin was harmed by Phoenix. He immediately gets this protective over his family and really wants to do the protecting part. And that's kind of a compulsion that everyone gets through. And Phoenix's family reacts to her coming out. They're also protective of her in their way. So everyone's kind of doing the same thing. They're kind of protecting their own. They're trying to be family. They're trying to be good family members or citizens of the world, family members. They're all doing the same thing even though it's contrary to what someone else is doing. So as every one of these
2: characters is working their way through this, the complexities of all that, and these overlapping narratives, um, let me just by way of example talk about Phoenix's younger sister, Cedar, who, who found some chosen family while her sister was in jail. And then we learned that a new friend of hers has a connection to Phoenix's victim. So again, these overlapping narratives and connection. That overlap... Katerina, it is fraught, but it does open a door to restorative justice, which I know is something you you you've thought deeply about, and this was very intentional. So tell me about restorative
6: justice and how you want to approach it in this book. Okay, my criminology degree is many, many years old, and my knowledge of this area is very full of cobwebs. But the idea of restorative justice is really seeing from those who are victimized point of view, as well as those who have victimized, seeing where they come from and what has led them to that act. And through that, some might call it empathy, some might call it justice, whatever you want to call it. Through that, you think of something that will restore in one way or another. The idea not so much as meting out punishment, but to prevent whatever has happened from happening again and to make not only those who are victimized but those who have committed harm whole, as whole as possible. That's a really... You know, I encourage everyone to look up what restorative justice means because I'm, you know, I'm a poet and I say things really backwards sometimes. <laughs> but the idea here is really using that concept, that very, very big concept that's actually built on many traditional knowledges and, that, and traditional practices of of restoring and bringing people together in the circle in order to see different perspectives. So here in this novel, that's really the the symbol. Maybe the analogy, the thing that I play with, my characters aren't sitting here in a circle telling each other about their lives. They're going about their lives in in real time in the action of the story. But through their perspectives, you hear about what they're going through and what they will go through in the future. Mm. If you're just joining us, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with Katerina
2: Vermette, who has a new novel out. It's called The Circle, So, Katerina, when I'm reading this novel, I had to frequently remind myself that this is fiction, which is a tribute to your great writing, that it it felt so very real, the parallels to real life, the many, many echoes of the conversations we're having in this country, the stories Mm. we're hearing from many, many Indigenous people in this country, so... At one point, there's this newspaper journalist who's speaking with a young Indigenous man who's been jailed for murder, and he tells a reporter, this is what you write, I come from a long line of prisoners. My whole family was prisoners, only they were locked up in residential schools or on reserves they couldn't leave without a paper or in foster care. You're making a point that goes beyond the page of fiction. Why is that historical context important to you to write about when we're talking about restorative justice or reconciliation or to enter into the many conversations that we're having in our country?
6: Well, I always like to preface this part where to say that I'm, I'm a storyteller. I'm a fiction writer. I purposely write fiction because I don't want to mess around with real things and real facts. That quote that the very fictionalized gang member, incarcerated gang member, person, human being, young man said, was really in response to readings I've done and experiences I've had throughout my life with people who have been incarcerated, involved with the law, involved with, you know, gangs. The idea is that when you live in marginalized communities is that your choices become limited. And I think that persons that we often see as, you know, the quote unquote bad guys or bad people in the world, they come by those choices from a series of experiences and choices and sometimes very limited choices. So when you're talking about an indigenous person who's incarcerated for violent behavior, it's really easy to see the connections between what he has had to overcome and what he maybe didn't successfully overcome and all of the burdens that were imposed upon him, none of which were his fault. When we're born into marginalization, when we're born into the repression and the many attempted genocides that have happened to indigenous nations in this country, this is not our fault. What we have to contend with is sometimes, I always equate it to that idea of um, twice as hard for half as much. Hmm. What sometimes we are born into is a lot less than a lot of other people have. And in order to overcome that is detrimentally more difficult. Um, And the results are Plenty. Many of us get to be very lucky, and we get to succeed. Many of us have strong families and strong people that we get to come from. Um, all of these things are true. It's not just one experience. It's thousands and thousands, if not millions, of different experiences. And sometimes those experiences lead you to be "quote unquote" the bad person.
2: You've said before that you don't pull any punches when you're writing about the hard stuff, and this is hard stuff. You're writing about um, the violence, the trauma it is not like you can write about trauma and violence in some nice fluffy way i'm not suggesting that but why do you have, feel like you really just have to not pull punches like here's here's just what it is
6: i don't it's not that i don't want to try to pull punches i really try to be very conscious of not exploiting anyone, including myself, including my past, including my fictionalized characters who are not real. If something has to be described, and unfortunately, sometimes things have to be described, I really try to get in and out with only as much as I need to, as little as possible. I don't think we need to go into um, intense detail. I think we can allude to certain things, and we're all very intelligent readers and writers and listeners, and we know what people are talking about. I do try to, whenever I talk about the hard stuff in my books, I try to cushion it around with other things. Like in the break, I always used to say whenever there was a hard scene, immediately after that, someone was caring for someone else and pouring a cup of tea. You know, there was a lot of tea drinking in the break. In this one, I feel like the violence was was less, but immediately after that, there was always some care. So when Jake talks about his past and his his trouble that he got into and his conflict with the law, he immediately got sent to an elder and got to have some absolute beautiful care. Um, and I think that's important to do in storytelling. I don't think we should leave ourselves in the hard stuff. We should, uh, as a storyteller, I look at it as my responsibility to carry it through, so we get to the good stuff too.
2: And, and to that point, I mean, there's a lot of healing through these books uh, and for these characters and with these characters that span several years. Let's talk about the healing. What do you what do you want us to meditate on when it comes to healing and, and, and that sort of time frame that this is several years? This isn't a one and done kind of thing.
6: What I wanted to put in here is not only the hard stuff that sometimes looks really glaring, especially if you don't know to look for it. I mean, Someone else might read this book and not think it's very hard because or, you know, maybe I let some people off the hook or maybe they this is sound looks familiar to to their life and it doesn't look as harsh. But other people, it might be completely out of left field and unknown. I do think as much as the hard stuff is there, there's also incredible healing there. There's there's a lot of elders in this book. There's a lot of healers and caregivers and community people who are taking care in this book. And for everyone who's doing harm, there's someone who's doing immense amounts of good, mm-hmm. even if they're hurting too, even if, because we're all human, you know, and we're all doing our own things at the same time. And I don't think that the the wrong we do necessarily outweighs the good we do. I think there's there's a lot more good in here.
2: The book ends with this traditional Sundance ceremony. It, it's a joyful event, despite all the pain and trauma. It doesn't gloss it over. It doesn't, you know, just tie a nice little bow around it, but it is a sort of beautiful ending. Like there's this feeling of momentum of, of, of moving forward. I imagine from your part, again, not to tie in a bow, but that was something you want to reflect in your writing of this.
6: I did. I did. In these three novels, one of the things that each of them have in common is they do have ceremony in each. At the end of the break, they go to a sweat they go to a visit, a sweat lodge um, in the middle of the strangers. Phoenix undergoes a naming ceremony. And then at the end of this, they go to a Sundance. And I should also preface that as well as that I'm very respectful when it comes to ceremony. And I don't describe the ceremony itself. I describe the people kind of on the outskirts. You know, this the sweat scene at the end of the break is the conversation they have after the sweat and after you go to into the lodge and that immense relief and you have those really good conversations. I don't describe the ceremony itself. I'm not describing the Sundance. I'm describing two people who visit the Sundance, one of them for the first time. And just that immense feeling you have in ceremony when people come together to literally work for their communities and themselves and that healing that happens that is is so palatable and it's so powerful and you can feel it and that was the healing i think every every sentence in the book required at the end and that was definitely the healing that i wanted for the end and i wanted for these characters because that's the beauty of fiction i can i can lead everyone um whenever possible whenever i can Um, I can lead them to where I think they should go. And and ceremony is such a beautiful place to go. So I got to take some people there.
2: I know for so many readers who love your work, um, it's going to be, if this is the end (laughs) of these fictional characters in terms of you writing about them, it's going to be hard for a lot of readers to say goodbye to them as well. Um, You've really taken us into their worlds. And I thank you for this book and for talking to me today.
6: Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
2: Katerina Vermette is a Métis writer. Her new novel is called The Circle.
0: I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas.
2: It's a very uncertain time for Canadian media as it faces a number of huge challenges. Newspapers as well as TV and radio numbers are in decline as audiences express news fatigue and distrust. Layoffs in the industry are mounting. And the federal government's Online News Act, referred to as Bill C-18, has led to blocked content on Facebook and Instagram rather than compensation. And I can tell you, we are facing all of that here at Your National Public Broadcaster, with media leaders trying to navigate the future landscape in this time of deep transformation. Well, Catherine Tate is the President and CEO of CBC Radio Canada. Catherine, good morning. It's nice to have you in studio. Nice to meet you.
7: <laughs> good morning, It's a delight to be here.
2: We will dig into the challenges I mentioned just a bit. But before we do that, I want you to start off by... Just make your case. You've been in charge of this organization for just over five years now. Your term's been extended until January of 2025. Here's a case I want you to make. Why should CBC Radio Canada exist in 2023 to the tune of about $1.2 billion of taxpayers' money?
7: That's a great question. I would say that um, the case goes like this. First of all, CBC Radio Canada is the only, the only, national news organization in this country. That means coast to coast to coast in English, in French, and eight indigenous languages. So without that national public broadcaster, people in Newfoundland won't be speaking to the people in Gaspé, won't be speaking to the people in Whitehorse. We connect the country in in a really profound way. With over 80 uh, stations and communities, uh, we're present on the ground. And I guess the case is, without it, we would become even more fragmented or polarized that we're already seeing uh, in the country today. Sure, trust in public institutions is down. It's not just in Canada. It's worldwide. But let's be clear. Over 75% of Canadians still consider CBC, Radio-Canada, their most trusted source of news. And that's incredibly important. In a world of disinformation and misinformation, we need to stand strong. Uh, In fact, I would say the case for public broadcasting is stronger than it's ever been.
2: You brought up the number 75% uh, trust CBC. And while you defend the CBC, there are tens of thousands of Canadians, you know, that are calling to defund us. In an Angus Reid poll that happened um, at the beginning of July, 36% of those polled want the CBC's funding cut off. Now, it's important to say that the majority of those who support defunding us have voted conservative in the past. That's according to that poll, but not all of them here. There is support to defund across the political spectrum of voters. How did it get to this level and what responsibility as
7: president and CEO do you take for that? Well, first of all, as I just said, the um, the issue around trust is not just a media um, uh, phenomenon. It's public institutions, it's politicians, it's governments. And as a media company, we are also subject to that decline in trust. And it's been declining really over the last 10 years. And again, not just in Canada. It's a global phenomenon. And uh, my colleague at the BBC, Tim Davey, pointed out um, in a recent conversation that we're living in a time where uh, democracy is actually in decline. We're, for the first time since the Second World War, we have fewer countries uh, living under democratic um, regimes than ever before. And one of the um, stalwarts for a democracy is independent journalism, and in fact, it's no surprise that there's been a there's a confluence. the attacks on journalists, the um, online and physical uh, violence against journalism corresponds with this decline in trust. however, it's not just trust these are calls to
2: defund, and they aren't all about trust they are we're not doing a very good job around here. people
7: don't think we're delivering on our mandate well. Our mandate is very, very complex. First of all, we serve all Canadians. We're, again, we're the only broadcaster in the system that has that obligation, that honor and that privilege to serve all Canadians. And at a, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was a simpler world. It was radio and television. Um, I sat down with my family on a Sunday and tuned in to a show with them, and the world has changed. Social media, technology, the choice, the platforms, all of that has given us an incredible uh, lens into the world in terms of amazing content. But at the same time, it has had a, I would say, a a, a (laughs) deunification impact. And so when people say defund the CBC... I understand the frustration around economics and housing crisis and all the issues coming out of COVID that people are suffering. But let's not forget what CBC does in community. And I would say that as, as many people who might say defund the CBC, there are actually many more, in fact, the majority of Canadians who still believe that the CBC is enormous value for their $33 a year. Let's be clear. That's a week of lattes or two months of Netflix you get for $33 TV, radio, streaming, podcasts. This show, Pia...
2: Among the, and I'm not going to surprise you by saying this, among the most prominent voices to defund is federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev. So let's go back to February. This is an interview you did with the Globe and Mail. You were quoted as calling the defund message a slogan to solicit donations for the conservative party and quoted as saying, there's a lot of CBC bashing going on, somewhat stoked by the leader of the opposition. Polyev then responds on Twitter saying about you, Catherine Tate, quote, she launched a partisan attack against me, proving my claim that the $1.2 billion corporation is a mouthpiece for Justin Trudeau. By wading into the political conversation, which the CBC is part of, do you not compromise this public broadcaster's role as independent of politics and government direction?
7: I think it's important to understand that um, I am not a journalist. I do not touch the journalism in this company, as you well know. I have I've never n- met you till today. <laughs> to make that point. I have no editorial influence, um, as it should be. The newsrooms operate independently uh, from management. The first line of my job description is to advocate for a strong public broadcaster. And so for me, that's what I do. I get up every day, and I advocate. And if I feel that uh, people are um, attacking us, I will always be there to stand up and say, here are the 10, the 100 reasons why public broadcasting matters. Except you didn't say that. You said that the fans
2: were flamed by the leader of the opposition.
7: And all I can say is I truly, truly believe that a country without public broadcasting, in fact, this has been demonstrated in, um, in Europe, that countries that have vibrant, strong, well-funded public broadcasters have a corresponding higher level of civic engagement, democratic involvement, and lower levels of polarization. Recent political polling
2: shows the federal um, Conservatives ahead of the Liberals, meaning the defunding of the CBC could become a reality if Polyev and his party for- form the next government. The Conservative Policy Convention was this weekend, and the leader talked about selling off federal buildings and land to build housing, and he said this.
3: You know, it just warms my heart to think of the beautiful family rolling up in their U-Haul to their wonderful new home in the former headquarters of the CBC. <laughs>
2: When you hear that, you think what?
7: I'm just wondering. The former headquarters of the CBC is in Ottawa, so I'm curious to know. We most of our properties are aren't currently rented, so um, I I think that you know we're living in a very complicated time. I believe that um, even with teleworking, if you think about it, a lot of our buildings are. We have to rethink how we use our space. Um, And we're now operating in hybrid work uh, formats. So, you know, I really believe that we are an organization in transformation, and there are all all sorts of opportunities to do more with less. I think his point probably
2: there goes beyond the actual physical Mm. replacing of a building. I think, you know, as you heard there from the crowd, they support the defunding of the CBC. So if Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives form the next government, there's a real possibility that that might happen. Have you factored in the prospect of funding cuts into your plans for the CBC? And if you have, what other kind of funding models are you looking at?
7: Well, as you you started the the program this morning, talking about um, the stresses in the media um, sector, we're not immune to those stresses, even though we have the privilege of the parliamentary allocation, which is an enormous privilege. uh, We also have financial pressures the 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 structure of our business is under enormous pr- uh, pressure uh, viewers have moved away from traditional uh, platforms and are consuming on digital platforms as a result advertising revenue has declined subscription revenues have declined so we we have been adjusting to that just as other media organizations have so I don't put in place plans for possible changes of government. That would be, you know, CBC, Radio Canada has been here for 80 years, and I am confident that Canadians, your listeners, will be supportive of, uh, of this organization going forward. And, and we have thrived over 80 years. Ha- so,
2: because ha- there's no, no saying that the Liberals also, if they continue to form government, might not cu- cut our funding. So the question being, like, are you looking at different funding models for us?
7: Right, I just didn't finish my thought on the, on the cutting. So the issue for us, as you, you probably know, the f- uh, federal government recently announced a 3% cut across all government agencies and crowns. So we're subject to that. So we're planning for that. And we're looking at how we can reduce our costs. In terms of funding models, you know, we have been very, very successful in transitioning to a digital uh, reality. And so right now, just to be clear, I don't know if your listeners know what I, our funding model is. Yes, we get that $1.2 billion from um, from the p- parliament. And we also have another $500 million that we earn in commercial revenue, and that's a combination of advertising and subscription. And when we've shifted from television advertising dollars to digital That transition is a little out of whack right now. Digital, we always say, you know, traditional dollars versus digital pennies. That's starting to build up again as the industry shifts. So we've done extremely well in building up that new approach, but we're still... Um, I would say we're still very much in a transformational phase.
2: So this is a good segue to talk about the Online News Act, which is another challenge for for you and for this organization and other news media in this country. This is a decision uh, by the federal government. The CBC's corporate stance is in favor of the Online News Act. It's going to require digital companies to pay news organizations like ours For content, last week, the government put out draft regulation that says compensation for media outlets would be relative to the number of full-time staff. I think we're at about 8,500 in this company, which suggests CBC would get the largest cut. Why does CBC deserve this money?
7: I'm just going to say it's not about the number of employees. It's about the number of journalists. So I just want to be clear. Not all of those people are journalists. I'm not a journalist. Um, but, to be clear, let's just step back for a second. What is this online news act really about? I just want to be you know put it in simple language. In the old days, when I was looking for a job in the summer in Ottawa, I went to the classified ads in the Ottawa Citizen and I found that waitressing job. Hmm. That's how it worked the The print newspaper has has really almost disappeared, and as the uh, news industry moved online. The source of revenue was digital advertising. At the same time, Google and Facebook, or Meta, came into our market. We invited them in, happily. And today, those two companies account for 80% of all digital advertising. That means every Canadian news organization and other companies are sharing 20%. So that really disproportionate um, situation, is what the Online News Act is trying to address. Google and Facebook use our news to engage their audiences and to keep us on their sites, and they sell advertising and make tons of money. We're saying, or the idea here, is that if you use the news, pay for it. It's just fair, And so that way, we would be able to invest in more journalism. To the question about should the public broadcaster be part of it, I would say slightly differently. What if the public broadcaster were not part of it? So that would mean that Canadians are subsidizing the the public broadcaster and then giving the news free to Google and Facebook. Who would make money on. So it would almost be like the Canadian public is subsidizing two trillion dollar companies. And meanwhile, the privates, they would have to pay the private news organizations for their news. Is that right? Who would they favor? Well, of course, they'd favor the free news. So the idea here is a level playing field where public, private, and especially small news media outlets benefit, let's be clear. And in the case of C B C Radio Canada, I can tell you, PIA, any dollar and we don't know how much would come from this process, this is all still you know being discussed, but any dollar that CBC Radio Canada would get from as a result of Bill C-18, would be reinvested in local regional news. Every single dollar, just as our colleagues in Australia did at the ABC. They they were able to hire 50 journalists and deploy them into the regions. Here's the challenge as we sit right now. Meta, parent company of
2: Facebook, has um, blocked Canadian news on all, all its platforms, those being Facebook and Instagram, in response to the online uh News Act. When you were here on the predecessor to this show in 2019, so at the start of your term, they, you were asked about Facebook and, and you said, you know, do you feel, co- you, you said, do we feel comfortable with the the findings around Facebook and some of the things they do? Absolutely not. But here's what you said. But the reality is our mandate is to serve Canadians wherever they are. Canadians are on Facebook. We are not serving them.
7: Well, there. no, that's right. And let's just be clear, 80% of Canadians are on Facebook, and 90% of Canadians who live in the North are on Facebook. And that's why we are there. And, and just to be clear, we're not serving our news there any right now, Our journalism is not there right now, because we're being blocked. Our other content still is available, the arts programming, books programming, other things. But It is a big problem for us that our news isn't there. And by the way, it's not just us, all Canadian news. Can you imagine a company operating that has such a dominant position in social media in this country and no Canadian news?
2: And so the move now by the CBC and other media outlets is that you've requested Canada's Competition Bureau to investigate Meta's decision. Why that route? Why that approach? What do you hope it's going to actually accomplish
7: Well, we went and talked to our colleagues at the um, uh, Canada News Media Association and the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. We're not acting alone here. We went in together, which was really important. And basically our position, as I said, if you have such a dominant role in the market and you control so many eyeballs or access to community – and you deny the right of those people to, to be able to access news, we believe that's anti-competitive behavior. And we believe that the Competition Bureau has a role to play in, in, um, in, in responding to Meta and saying, this: you can't operate in this fashion. What if it fails? Then what? I really, really believe that the... You know, let's just be clear. Meta's objection to the Online News Act isn't about Canada. It's about the world. And there are similar movements afoot in California, in Europe, to require these large global platforms to give back to the communities that where they are present, where they are extracting revenue with nothing in return. So I believe... And I, I think we're going to see it. I know that uh, Google is facing um, an antitrust suit in the United States right now. I think we're seeing a movement at foot. The European Broadcasting Union, for example, where where countries are saying, "Hey, wait a minute, we're we're sovereign nations. These are our people. You can't just roll into town, take out all the money, watch our news business collapse, and not be required." to give something back. And we're not asking them. I mean, these are tiny, tiny portions of their total revenues.
2: In the interim, are you worried that Canadians are not being served
7: with their news needs and, and, and to keep a robust, healthy democracy? Absolutely. And especially during what we saw in the summer with the fires in, in around Yellowknife and in BC, these communities had no access to news. And oftentimes, they that's how they get the information they need, and we, and absent CBC or other local news, it's an it creates a vacuum and an opportunity for disinformation or misinformation to flow in. I, I read in one CBC um, report that a woman thought that the the road was open at ten, but it was the wrong time. That's the kind of thing that really concerns us, and that's why I wrote to to Meta and urged them. Put aside the politics for for this time. Our country is undergoing emergency measures during a climate climate change crisis. It said no. And it said no.
2: (laughs) I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and uh, the voice you're hearing is Catherine Tate, the president and CEO of CBC Radio Canada. Catherine, let us talk about the workforce. I said that CBC has about 8,500 people employed in all different things, not just journalists, across the corporation. About a quarter of those are temporary workers. For years, they have been talking about the financial and mental toll of that precarity. So when you were here again in 2019, you had said um, to those same kinds of similar staff concerns by saying, quote, our obligation is the culture of the place that allows people to speak up and not to feel precarious or threatened in their jobs. What have you done to meet that obligation considering these ongoing age-old concerns?
7: Oh, I heard it loud and clear. I, one of the things that I do, and it's a, as a great privilege, I travel to all our stations across the country, and I hear from um, all the employees, including temporary employees. First of all, just because you're a temporary employee doesn't mean you're not a valued employee. That was that's message number one. But what we did practically is we started to put in place um, programs to support. Uh, number one training of temporary employees, but also access to p- permanent jobs. So we've made a lot of progress. It's incredibly important for us to be able to bring in younger, more diverse um, uh, uh, new faces into this organization and th- and temporary employees, are often the source of that It's hard so, to pay your rent when you're a temporary employee it's hard to pay your rent in a lot of jobs in, in canada right now and we recognize that and we're working really really hard to do better and i think you know as we go into our next um union negotiations i look forward to those conversations
2: cbc um as you said and as you said is is, is really important exists on many platforms. We juggle TV, streaming, digital, radio, audio. I think there's probably more <laughs> in news, sports, arts, so on. We, we, we do offer a lot. The latest public financial report showing all of our key performance indicators, which reflects a period from April through December of 2022. It shows our audience reach is below target on some of the biggest platforms. Is the CBC simply doing too much? There is the argument that prioritize, do fewer things better
7: well, uh, that's a kind of a two, two part. That's you, a you two part. You go for it. <laughs> so, on the below target, uh, what we saw during the pandemic was an incredible lift um, on all our platforms. People were at home. People were really desperate for information. And we went from about 20-21 million weekly or monthly um, views to our digital sites To 25. We were the most, um, uh, we were the top destination in Canada for news and information during the two year pandemic period. And because we are always setting goals that are high for us, we hoped very much to keep those numbers up there coming out of the pandemic. And you mentioned it again in your opening what we saw is fatigue, news fatigue, as people went back to their normal lives, the last thing they wanted to do was sit around and hear more news, especially bad news. So um, that's, that's the question on the target. Do I think we do too much? I think that we are, first of all, I think we're the most fabulous and our people are the most fabulous um, news organization and entertainment organization in the country. And without um, our participation, when you talk about all of those different things... Who would do it? I and mean, we are unique in that regard who would who would produce shows about Canadian books? who would produce um, the you know still standing so we have to we still we have to think about the it's not just a hole that we fill it is a absolute central um, position in terms of, cre- of creative. I was looking at um, the fall season launch CBC and this is not including Radio Canada CBC launched 40 original shows and 4,000 hours of programming. CBC is the only company in Canada operating at that level in terms of Canadian content. Why would we withdraw from that? As long as we can maintain and work within our means, technology is improving and allowing us to have a lighter footprint. I say, let's keep doing At the best we possibly can. Let me just
2: go back to the targets, and you might not have the numbers at your fingertips, but what is the target and how well short of that are we falling?
7: Well, first of all, when we set targets, we put a range. And we fell within the range, just to be clear. It's not like we were way below target. It was slightly below uh, within the range. So for next year, we will look and we'll try to keep that number going. But just to be clear, when we're looking at targets, we're looking at um, engagement we're looking at reach, we're looking at number of people who come to our sites, and one of the issues that we face, I'll take an example. People often say, well, nobody's watching The National. Well, actually, 1.4 million people watch The National every day but they're not watching it on traditional television. They're watching it on YouTube, they're watching it on their mobile phone, they're watching it on Roku. And one of the issues that we have is that the industry, and this is real insider baseball, so I apologize to the listeners, the industry hasn't caught up. 20% of our audience is watching us on connected TV. They don't count those numbers. So we're a little bit, as I said, we're in a period of transition and transformation our audiences are moving to digital. It doesn't mean they're not watching. They're just not watching in the same way they did 20 years ago. As we've been talking about and
2: as we set up in the introduction, there's d- dwindling trust for uh, both the media at large and this specific organization. Your current term uh, as president and CEO is set to expire in January of 2025. What steps do you plan to take in the next year and a half to help CBC rebuild, repair its relationship with our audiences?
7: Well, we're doing a lot of things and um, I guess we just stay really, really focused and we're working on our next strategic plan. And I'd say the three key messages are proximity, relevance, and trust. So what does proximity mean? (laughs) Proximity is geographic. It's being on the ground, connecting with community. Um, You know, every holiday season, CBCers, and Radio-Canadien, raise millions of dollars to give back to community. Um, This this past year, we launched a program uh, called Collab, where we work with uh, public libraries, and we're now in 750 public libraries where we're introducing new Canadians, hard-to-reach younger Canadians, to CBC. We can't assume that everybody grew up on CBC Mm. the way you and I did. They don't. They're new. We're we're welcoming five hundred thousand new Canadians every year. They're coming from countries from all over the world. They don't know who we are. So we really need to work harder, and that's a focus on finding not just the users, the listeners that we have here this morning, but going beyond that and finding the new Canadians and the harder-to-reach Canadians. And that's really going to be my focus.
2: It's been good to hear your vision and your plans, and I appreciate you coming in this morning. Thank you, Catherine.
7: Thank you for the opportunity. Catherine
2: Tate is the president and CEO of CBC Radio Canada. This is The Sunday Magazine. I'm Pia Chattapadai kind of doing some shoulder rolls here. I'm stretching and generally getting myself psyched up because after a few months break, we're back at it right now. (sighs) With that's puzzling. I love that Shirley Ellis jingle. It is time for me to face off against another familiar CBC voice and one of our clever listeners in a battle of brain teasers. As always, we are joined by puzzle master Peter Brown. Now, Peter, I've been away for a bit, but if I recall correctly, the last three times I played That's Puzzling, I was victorious. Am I right?
1: Oh, you're right. (laughs) Pia. You are on the verge. You are on the verge of possibly becoming... The Michael Jordan of the 21st -hmm. century. Can I explain? Go ahead. You You won three times, but then in June you didn't play. 30 years ago, next month, Michael Jordan had won three NBA championships, quit to play baseball, came back and won three more. So if you run off three more wins this month and the next two... You and Michael Jordan will stand alone in having achieved this. No pressure, Pia.
2: I'm going to say something very controversial. You ready for it? Yep. I am no Michael Jordan. I have had a relaxing, (laughs) languid summer. I have no confidence that I've got my game back, be it baseball, basketball, or certainly that's puzzling.
1: (laughs) Well, that's either some admirable humility or some crafty gamesmanship, and we'll find out which. Uh, We have only two competitors stand in Pia's way. Just the two today. Let's meet them now. First in Toronto, it's CBC's National Education Reporter, Deanna Sumanak-Johnson. Hello, Deanna. Hello, Peter. Deanna, for me, this time of year really is the beginning of the year. When the leaves turn, when the kids go back to school, are you here with your new glue sticks and pencil case and shiny new binders? Are you equipped for the beginning of the school year?
8: Uh, I'm equipped for this quiz only because Pia reminded me that I should have a pencil and paper ready. So I don't think this is a good augury of my my performance today, but uh, I am in the midst of thinking about uh, education themes that are going to define this week and the next few months. I've been talking about it to everybody who would listen on radio or television Uh, and, yeah, doing lots of stories, back to school stories. So we're about to see whether the education reporter is educated on on, on other mm. things, but can know, I just say yeah. that
2: Deanna is like that kid you sit next to, and you, you're—I'm the kid with all the school supplies, and I'm like, um, you're gonna need a pen for this. Do you want to borrow one? It was like that, but I didn't say it in that tone.
1: But Deanna used the word augury, which I think is, scores top marks for vocabulary so far this season.
8: We'll see how uh, uh,
2: how I do today. On she's sounding very bright to me, Pete.
1: Yeah,
8: me too. Mm -hmm. The stage is set. And our third
1: player qualified for today's game by entering our That's Puzzling Listeners Challenge. Back in June, we asked you to invent a new word that would describe the eerie silence that lets you know that your children or grandchildren may be doing something they're not supposed to. That's silence that tells you there's mischief afoot. And the winning word that was invented is... Dread silence. Dread silence. And the person who submitted that entry and joins us today in the Puzzle Dome is Ken McLean from Starbuck, Manitoba. Hello, Ken. Hi there. How are you doing? I am well, thanks. Have you experienced a lot of dread silence in your life? I've had my share, absolutely. I've been, I experienced both being part of it and uh, doing it. It's a funny moment, isn't it? When you suddenly realize I have not heard a sound for a while, someone is doing something bad.
3: Well, somebody's doing something. I don't know. It's always bad. But they
2: assume... <laughs> like they're sleeping in the doing middle of the day, something. which yeah. is great. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: And Ken, how, do you feel ready to take on uh, Diana and Pia? I have to be honest with you. I'm very nervous, but yes, I'm going to give it my best shot. It's really luck of the draw, Ken. I, I wish you good luck and equally to the others. And let's jump in to That's Puzzling. We start today with a definition challenge. I'm gonna give you one word and three possible definitions. Two of those definitions are real, one I have made up. Your challenge, players, is to spot the lie. Again, two real, one fake, spot the fake. This is worth one point. Today's word is crimps, C-R-I-M-P-S. It's like chimps, but there's an R in there, crimps. Which of the following is not a real definition of the word crimps? Is it a British slang for running shoes, is it, in jewelry making, beads used to create a loop in a necklace, or is it a verb, an old military term, that means traps or deceives someone into joining the Navy? So it's British running shoes, the jewelry beads, or a term for tricking others into naval service. Which is the fake? Pia, what do you think?
2: Oof oof crimps i think of those 1980 crimper iron yes yes anyone no. who was I a girl know. in the 80s remembers this crimpers crimpers is that what, <laughs> funny. Is that what the they're called crimped, crimped hair right Crimp-tar, crimped yeah, yeah. yeah. Weird. so that's not one of my choices though, so that's i know i was hoping for that too okay here's where i'm at i know like i think when you squish the hook part of um the necklace i feel like there's a tool that may be called a crimper so i'm gonna say that one's real so the beads are real pete So now I'm just on the guessing thing. I feel like I don't want to do a fake British accent because A would be bad and possibly offensive, but I feel like um, the British slang for runners, like I got me a new pair of crimps. Sounds pretty cool. So I'm going to say the fake is the military one.
1: Okay, you think the fake is the military one? I love
2: that no one jumped in and did a British accent. Very good, everyone.
1: (laughs) I almost, you know what? I was on the verge of going, Oi, me crimps, gov, and I'm so glad I didn't. (laughs) Ken which is not the real definition of crimps it's the jewelry beads the running shoes or the tricking others into naval service
3: I'm also going with the naval service I think that doesn't sound to be correct
1: okay Deanna you have a decision to make here you can either go with the herd and guarantee a tie at the end of the first round or you can swing for the fences
8: I think the herd is very smart. Um, uh, like Pia, my my first instinct was it was that thing that that made our hair kind of uh, frizzy and zigzaggy mm. in, in it's the eighties. You know, and of course, it, all the does. all the horrible <laughs> things we wore as children are coming back, um, and our own children will want them. But. Uh, the jewelry-making term almost reminds me of it. It creates loops, and I feel like I know enough craftspeople. I feel like I've heard it related to jewelry-making, okay. so I think it's that one sounds uh, uh, real. Okay. Um, I also think that, I don't know, it just does sound like a British slang term, like something you would see in a Guy Ritchie movie, maybe. Um I, I I feel like if you were trying to trick people into joining the navy, I don't think you would want them to, to know about it, right? So I feel like the navy one is 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 the fake one.
1: All right. Well, we know this is going to be a tie, so Pia and Ken <laughs> and Deanna all believe that tricking someone into naval service is the fake. Is it the fake? No, it is not. Ooh, that is it's a the real Nakers, thing, isn't it? That is a real thing. <laughs> It's a bit unsavory. Wow. It goes back to oh, the sailing yeah. ship days, and you would trick or force someone in, into naval service. The British slang for running shoes is actually crepes, very close. So, wow.
7: Well, not, let me I mean, just clones. let me just take that this,
1: it
2: starts with a C and, and has an R N- and a P <laughs> and an S at the end. Fair enough. Let me just mark because
1: <laughs> it, during the spring, uh, I was not fooling people on the definitions, and I spent a long sleepless summer hoping to improve, and I did. It's, let's just review the score. Pia is in first place with zero points. <laughs> Ken, uh, very close with zero. And Deanna, yet to be on the board. I think we can say we have a close game so far. Oh, so,
2: Guess Peter Brown's winning at this point. <laughs> Stumped us all. Yeah. And that's all the time we have
1: for today's game. <laughs> we have two more exciting rounds to play. Our second round today is a game we call Monster Mashups. I've taken two words or phrases that have a syllable in common and mashed them together. I'll give you clues about both parts of the mashup. So for instance, if I asked you to take a delicious Canadian dessert and mash it up for a word or phrase meaning without exception, the dessert is Nanaimo bar and without exception is bar none. So your answer would be Nanaimo bar none. I will offer each mashup to one player if that first person misses, the others can steal. These are worth two points, and hints are available. Let's play monster mashups. Deanna, you're first. Your challenge is take a term for an extremely messy place and mash it up with a packing material. Extremely messy place. Nice and packing packing mat- material. material. And a hint is available. Uh.
2: I know. Uh, I oh, Ken! I was so <laughs> close. <laughs> okay, okay, Ken. No, no, no,
1: no, no. Ken, no, no. Do I you, get to go? Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. Well, first you get you can have a hint, or if Ken has completely psyched you out, we can uh, just stop.
8: I will. I'm gonna go with pig styrofoam.
1: Yes, what? absolutely right. Pig styrofoam. Diana <laughs> is on the board. The others remain scoreless. Ken, is that what you had? That's what I had. Pia, how's your confidence?
2: Zero, like below zero. Like I was like messy. (laughs) We stumped Michael Jordan. (laughs) Ken,
1: you're up next. Okay. So so here's your chance to get on the board. Ken, we want you to mash up a term for directly with a word for purse. And bear in mind, this isn't worth points, but Deanna didn't even take the hint. Let's just remember that if you want to be psyched out. Oh boy, directly. That's the one that's causing me the issue here. Let Um, me remind you, there is a hint. Well, and I'll take the hint, please directly as in information that comes directly from the original source. I learned this blank.
6: Okay. Um,
7: First handbag.
1: Oh, he did it. (laughs) Did it just occur to you or were you psyching us out there, Ken? Uh, It just occurred to me. Wow. So far, flawless in this round. Pia, our final mashup goes to you. Mash up a term for the virtual realm, and a type of heart implant. Okay. The virtual realm. Virtual,
2: re- virtual well, realm. What does that even mean? VR? No. If That's you're in virtual the virtual reality.
1: if you're in the virtual realm, you're you, where? Where are you? You're in this place um, with a type of heart implant, and there, there is a
2: hint. Okay, I think I've got the heart implant, but I can't work backwards. I'll take the hint for the virtual realm, because I'm really stuck on even what that means.
1: Well, the hint is for the heart implant. It's an <laughs> implant that keeps the heart rhythm steady.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. So what okay, key, I what know what keeps... that is. Okay. Okay, and it wasn't what I had in mind, so ah. that's good. So that's helpful. Okay, virtual realm. So, um, oh gosh, so it's something plus pacemaker is what right. i what i have
1: so you're looking for something that ends with the letters p-a-c-e
2: yeah got that um it's the letters of preceding that, that i'm struggling with <laughs> um yeah something virtual realm uh space maker
1: you're so close
2: oh no you've got you've got a good i'm i to space makers.
1: something space maker Oh. You're in the virtual world. You're in
2: VR, uh, virtual world atmosphere. Diana's looking no, struggling too. So I I, I, I give up. I don't know this one.
1: Uh, Deanna, do you have any idea? You're, it's your chance um, to steal.
2: Outer space
8: maker? No, I, I no, no. I'm out.
1: Ken. Wow, I was going to guess outer space maker. Jeez. Um, I think you're going to feel a little bit sick. Um, Pia, I'm going to give you one for Pacemaker. Cyberspace.
2: Oh, oh, Cyberspace. That's so like 1990s compared to AI and stuff. See? Cyberspace.
1: That was tricky because the syllable kind of smudged there. So, Pia, the stage is set for an amazing three-pointer at the buzzer to come from behind. After two rounds, Deanna has two. Ken has two. Pia has two has won.
2: Now listen, kids. This is a reminder why practice is important because once you stop practicing, you become terrible at things like I am at this game currently. She can still steal it. I mean, I will...
8: Just saying, pig styrofoam. It's, I might be. If you hear about me leaving the CBC and becoming the inventor of pig styrofoam, you heard it here first. It sounds like something that would do really well with teenagers. Yeah. Like, like their little right. tails? Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: And it sounds like a band I saw at the sidetrack in Edmonton in 1992. Pig styrofoam. <laughs> pig styrofoam from Thunder Bay, Ontario.
2: Could be from Starbuck, Manitoba, where Ken's from. Oh, yeah. yeah. Home of, yeah. there's a
1: big sign outside of town saying, home of pig styrofoam. Home uh, of pig styrofoam. So the score after two rounds, players, Ken has two, Deanna has two, Pia has one. We turn to our final round. It's all to play for as we once again dive into monster mashups. This round has audio clues. So we are in the realm of pop culture here. These clues all combine a huge pop culture phenomenon from this past summer with something from another time and another genre. Again, these are worth two points. Hints are available. We're going to start with Pia, who begins the round in third place, which is unusual. For two points, this is going to play as a single clue. You're gonna mash up the smash hit movie from the summer, one of those, with this blues singer. So it's a smash hit movie from the summer and the blues singer. Listen closely.
6: What do I have
0: to do? You have to to go go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel.
5: The thrill is
6: gone away. The thrill is gone,
2: baby. The thrill is gone away. Okay. What do do you want, Brown? What do you want?
1: Uh, I want you to have listened to some blues earlier in your life. (laughs) So we're looking for the movie and the singer. And Do you want the hint?
2: No, I want nothing right now. First of all, Indigo Girls... What? what uh, what's
1: the movie?
2: Uh, Barbie. Okay. Uh, and but can we just talk about inter go, go girls closer to Five? I like to I five. To you. I oh. your tone when you said like, Barbie. Yeah, like obviously. Okay, my G <laughs> is low. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I've got Barbie. So B. B B King. Barbie yep. B King.
1: That is correct. That's
2: Woo-hoo! It. Ooh. Ladies and gentlemen, she's back. Oh yeah! And
1: just so you know, Ken was waiting to s- he jump in on that one.
8: Hi, Barbie. I had that one. He's got Kennergy. He's got Kennergy. Oh, oh, Kennergy. oh we my God! He's together. got Kennergy. Oh,
1: Ken. Not well, well Barbie and Ken. I mean, come on. Yeah. Absolutely, Ken. This next clue yes. goes to you. So Pia has three. Deanna has two. Ken has two. This could go any number of ways. Ken, your mashup involves three names. The middle name is Shared. Your challenge is to mash up this legendary Hollywood actress with this singer on a gigantic tour. So you probably know okay. half have that already. I so it's it. the actress and the singer. Ken, listen closely.
3: Without a treaty of alliance with Egypt, you could not hold the territories
7: under your command. True? Possibly. Then, Lord Antony, you come before me as a suppliant. You will therefore assume the position of a suppliant before this throne. You will kneel. I see i too late.
8: my brain. That's what people say. Ooh. Poor Ken. This <laughs> has it been Ken. the most singing
1: along round we've ever had. Ken, wh- what's your thinking?
8: Uh, Elizabeth Taylor Swift. Yeah. Wow. That was a
1: good one no has that was luck of the draw because <laughs> some of our players some weeks would not have gotten elizabeth taylor swift ken you're in yeah. the lead with four points wow this Can, is going to wait, go wait
2: ken go, we, yes. like if we if someone says the name taylor swift so i'm like an enormous taylor swift fan. then now we have to talk about her for a little bit because it's my favorite subject to talk about among many but one of them do you like taylor swift
3: Uh, I do like her. I I like the fact that she writes
1: all her own music. Um, My wife is going to see her in Toronto. (gasps)
2: Whoa! Your wife has just become the jealousy of so many people in the CBC newsroom. (laughs) Also, can you tell that wife, I will give her one very, very precious Sunday magazine coffee mug for one a Taylor Swift
8: ticket. That's <laughs> <So laughs> a one-to-one trade I'm season. I'm sure the market value is the same. $2,000, like yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> wow. wow.
1: So here's where we are. Ken has four, Pia has three, Deanna has two. Deanna, if you get this, you go to a tiebreaker with Ken. It just if,
8: can't be more perfect than Elizabeth Taylor Swift.
1: <laughs> <laughs> De- if if mm. Deanna misses, Pia could win if she gets it. Oh, boy. And if they both both miss, it's Ken. So this could break any number of
8: ways.
2: Can you tell me what you want to do so I can win that ticket. You want to win this thing? I'll, I'll, we'll fix it.
8: Absolutely. <laughs> Ken, you just found your ticket to the... Okay. <laughs> your wife yeah. just has to part with hers. But- yeah.
1: Classic Michael Jordan. The elbows are up. Here we go. <laughs> Mash up this 90s hit from a band of siblings with another huge summer movie from 2023. So it's the song... And it's the movie. Here we go.
6: We've got one hope. All
1: America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Got it. Keep everyone there until it's done. I heard her say, got it. What is it, Deanna?
8: Boppenheimer. That's right.
2: <laughs> Boppenheimer. I
8: am so... You know what's <laughs> funny is that you said 90s uh, Band of Siblings, and I was like, Oasis, I've got this.
5: <laughs>
8: <laughs> I was going for Oasisheimer, but uh, <laughs> Boppenheimer is even better.
1: So here's where we are. Deanna and Ken are tied at four. Pia, I'm sorry, the streak is over. It's so Canadian, end in a tie.
2: You know what? Uh, I, I have a solution. Pia wins. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what? There is, there
2: is no... So my, that is so
8: not, what Michael Jordan would do. <laughs>
1: here's, here's what I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. I declare that everyone except Pia is the winner. Fair.
2: No,
3: I'm in with that.
8: But if she gets the Taylor Swift t- ticket, she's the
2: real, winner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the real I mean, winner.
3: Well, if something changes, I'll, you'll be the first one to know.
8: <laughs> there you go. Right? Yeah. You mean if your is wife there. is suddenly
2: <laughs> unavailable to use her ticket? I know people Absolutely. in Starbucks. I know yeah. people Starbucks. <laughs> Star- Can I would watch your yeah. <laughs> wife very
8: carefully, Kevin.
1: Thank you, players here and at home, and that is an inconclusive, but very enjoyable first <laughs> round of That's Puzzling.
2: Peter, thank you. Enjoyable indeed. And thanks to Deanna and Ken as well. We play That's Puzzling every month. And if you want to follow in Ken's footsteps by getting me a Taylor Swift ticket, just joking, uh, by playing on air next month, here's how to enter for a chance to do just that. Send us a real existing word. Maybe it's something obscure from your job or hobby or just a fun word you've come across in your travels. A word that's really going to stump us because if we choose your word... We'll join you'll join us on air and hear us try to decode what your word means. So, email your real but obscure word to sunday at cbc.ca Please put that's puzzling in the subject line and include your phone number. You have one week until next Sunday, September 17th to enter. The winner will play next month and win the ultimate prize. And no, it's not a Taylor Swift ticket, but I want one of those. It's a Sunday Magazine coffee mug. Also want one of those. Have one of those. It's a sweet mug. Perfect size and feel. And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Big thanks to our producers, Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Arande Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Emily Chiarvezio. Our senior producer is Brian Colton. Our executive producer is Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast.